Welcome to Eagles, Globes, and Anchors, the strategically-minded podcast of the Marine Corps War College, covering the intersection of strategy, security, and warfare. Welcome to Eagles, Globes, and Anchors, the strategically-minded podcast of the Marine Corps War College, or MCWAR, as we like to call it. Today, we're discussing developments in Mexico and the U.S.-Mexican relationship. I'm your guest host, Bill Morgan, Director for the Diplomacy and Statecraft course here at the Marine Corps War College. Our guest today is Dr. Duncan Wood, Director of the Mexico Institute at the Woodrow Wilson Center in Washington, D.C. Dr. Wood lectures and publishes widely in the United States, Mexico, and Canada on intracontinental issues and relations with a primary focus on U.S.-Mexican ties. A widely quoted authority on energy policy, international banking regulation, and corruption, he is the author or editor of 10 books and over 30 articles and book chapters. Dr. Wood works closely with the World Economic Forum and leverages decades of experience at Mexico's leading universities and newspapers. He spoke to our students this morning about Mexico's promise and challenges. Dr. Wood, thank you for coming on the show. It's a great pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me. Before we start our discussion of developments in Mexico and U.S.-Mexican relations, can you tell us a little bit about your specific research in, uh, research interests at the moment? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, for many years, I've uh, I focused my research on uh, on Mexican politics, in particular on Mexican energy policy, which has been such a controversial issue uh, over the decades. Um, in particular, since the 2013 energy reform. So I spent a lot of time thinking about that. But recently, um, of course, my main focus has been trying to understand the uh, the policies and the implications of the uh, new presidency of Andrés Manuel López Obrador. Who, uh, who took uh, over the presidency of Mexico on December 1st of 2018. And although it's early days, we're, uh, we're finding this to be a very rich, fruitful area of research, just because there are some radical changes that he's trying to enact within the country. Well, good. That leads perfectly into my first question, which is, as AMLO settles in as president, how do you anticipate he will handle relations with the United States? Well, Andres Manuel has been such a controversial figure over over the years with regards to his attitudes towards the United States. Um, going back to uh, his first uh, presidential attempt back in uh, in 2006, Andres Manuel was a staunch opponent in those days of the NAFTA. Um, he uh, he really didn't like the uh, uh, the implication or the the fact of uh, Mexican economic dependence on the U.S. market. Um, since then, he's softened rather in his attitude. He has come to understand the importance of the North American economic relationship. He's come to understand the importance of cooperation with the United States. He has um, been less friendly, um, uh, particularly during the uh, the 2018 election campaign, been less friendly to President Donald Trump. Um, he has said that he would not stand up. Uh, sorry, he would not stand for any kind of provocation from President Trump. That he would seek a relationship based on mutual respect. And since the election, we've actually seen that he's uh, achieved a, a high degree of success on that front. President Trump reached out first of all uh, after the election. He, he he issued a very pleasant congratulatory tweet to uh, to new President uh, Elect López Obrador. 
The two men then had a very friendly phone call in which they discussed a number of issues of Mexican politics and of uh, U.S.-Mexico relations. President-elect López Obrador received Secretary of State Pompeo and some other U.S. cabinet secretaries in Mexico City, had very constructive talks. And uh, since then, we've seen an exchange of letters between the two presidents and an attempt on the part of Andrés Manuel López Obrador to try to engage with the Trump administration over issues of Central American migration and Central American development. So, in fact, despite the fears that existed before the election that the two men would naturally come to blows over uh, issues of, uh, of bilateral relations, the fact is, is that they've remained very, very friendly up to this point. But let me just issue a, a, a slight caution here. A lot of the, uh, the analysts uh, of Mexico-U.S. relations here in the U.S. and in Mexico fear that at a certain point during the, uh, the AMLO administration in Mexico, there will come a point where either there is a, an inflammatory statement or tweet from President Trump or that things will be going badly in Mexico and that will elicit a more nationalistic, anti-American reaction from Andrés Manuel López Obrador. And nobody's quite sure when or how that will happen. But people are really on tenterhooks. And I think that although things are definitely positive right now, there is ample scope for clashes to emerge in the future, whether it's over uh, foreign policy towards Venezuela, whether it's over trade relations, drugs, organized crime, or migration itself. And to me, I think that uh, you know, as we see more migra migratory flows coming up from Central America through Mexico, that's where really the, the tipping point may emerge, the trigger for a, a, a breakdown of bilateral relations. Yes, and I, I, I do want to get to the migration and border issues in a moment. But one thing that I found very interesting in listening to your talk this morning was it changed my mind somewhat about the who were the winners or who would do well in the renegotiated U.S.-Mexico-Canada agreement. And what's your, you know, with respect to that, to that agreement, revision of NAFTA, what are your main takeaways from it? So, first of all, let me just say that uh, you know, NAFTA is, uh, is an old lady of trade agreements. It was you know, negotiated in the early 1990s, uh, came into force in January of 1994. Um, you know, it's now 25 years old. And there's no doubt that it needed updating. In fact, for several years, uh, prior to the, uh, the uh, President Trump's election victory in 2016, a lot of us have been saying, you know, how can we modernize this agreement? And the general consensus was, you can't modernize it because nobody wants to open up that Pandora's box and, and get back into the details of North American free trade. As it turns out, uh, President Trump was perhaps the only man who had the ambitions and the political savvy to be able to open up that box and to deal with it uh, in such a way that we've really come to a, a, a consensus between the three countries that the new agreement, the USMCA agreement, or as they call it in Mexico, the TMEC, which is, uh, which is easier to say, um, that this is a step forward from the NAFTA. It's not necessarily, um, it doesn't necessarily solve all the problems of the NAFTA. And in some ways, there is a step backwards from some of the free trade principles that were embodied in the NAFTA. But we have seen a modernization. The first one of those 
is that we've incorporated many of the provisions that were negotiated in the TPP to do with intellectual property, to do with the services trade, to do with <clears throat> e-commerce, for example, digital trade. Those things are now in the, the new agreement. And that's definitely a step forward. Secondly, um, we've seen a, an increased focus on uh, regional content, in, uh, in particular in the auto trade. It's also there for um, steel and glass. Um, but in the auto trade, we've seen an increase from uh, 62.5% um, of regional content up to uh, uh, over 70% of, uh, of regional content for cars that count as North American cars. That's something which um, you know, was negotiated on the part of the Trump administration and was intended to increase the American or the U.S. content in, uh, in North American vehicles. My prediction is that this will actually result in higher levels of Mexican content in North American vehicles. Because if you now have an increased level of regional content and you have to choose where you're going to build your plant, you'll probably build it in Mexico. Now, to counteract that, of course, there is the um, minimal salary um, element of automobile production, which says that 40% of the value of a North American car has to be produced in factories where the average wage is um, $16 an hour or more. And you're not going to find factories in Mexico where that's the case. However, if you look at almost every model of car that's sold as a NAFTA vehicle today, almost all of them have 40% of their content produced either in the US or in Canada in factories where the minimum, uh, sorry, the average salary is $16 an hour or more. What will happen in the future? Well, one of the provisions of the USMCA is that both engineering and design, uh, as well as software, <coughs> count as being the content of the car. There is a likelihood that some of those functions which are currently um, conducted in the United States or in Canada, or even in Asia, will move to Mexico. And in fact, Jesus Siade, who is now Undersecretary for North America um, in the Mexican government, um, and was Andres Manuel López Obrador's NAFTA negotiator, um, or, or USMCA negotiator, I should say, has stated publicly that he believes that more of those high-value jobs will move to Mexico, and this will raise the average salary in Mexican factories, which will allow Mexico to comply even with that 40% level. So I'm not sure that this is going to produce big benefits for the United States. Um, other elements that we've seen in the new USMCA, um, increased uh, labor and environmental provisions, which are now incorporated into the text of the treaty as opposed to in a side agreement. Um, we've seen provisions on, uh, on dairy um, to try to increase U.S. access to the Canadian market. And perhaps most intriguingly, there is a provision in the new agreement which says that if any one of the three members wants to negotiate uh, a free trade agreement with a non-market economy, and you may as well just assume that that refers to China, then they have to give six months' notice to the uh, other partners in the agreement, and that those other partners in the agreement can withdraw from the USMCA, um, giving six months' notice to the other members. Now, it's kind of meaningless because any member can withdraw from the USMCA by giving six months' notice. 
But the fact that you make it explicit that you have to notify your partners if you're going to negotiate a free trade agreement with China is a an obvious, deliberate attempt by the United States to dissuade or deter either Canada or Mexico from coming into closer economic contact with China. That's very interesting. Uh, I want to switch now to the to the border issues. Um, the current standoff over border issues seems to me to mix two issues, one getting better and one getting worse, perhaps. Illegal immigration from Mexico has been, I think, decreasing for years. But asylum requests on the southern border from non-Mexicans has skyrocketed. Do I have that right? And how do you see it? And how do you see things going forward from where we are now? Yeah, absolutely. We have moved from a situation where in the early 2000s, we were seeing more than a million Mexicans um, crossing the southwest border of the United States um, into the United, into the United States um, uh, to a situation where now um, we're seeing actually net negative migration. In other words, more Mexicans are leaving the United States than are going into the United States. It doesn't mean that there's no migration of Mexicans. There are still lots of Mexicans who seek a place in the United States, but there are lots of Mexicans either because they're going home to retire, there are better opportunities in Mexico, or they're being deported, um, are leaving the United States than are entering the United States. This is a, an extraordinary turnaround. That human wave that we saw in the early 2000s has ended, and we're unlikely to ever see it again. So what are we seeing? Well, because of the rather dire economic and political circumstances in Central America, we're seeing waves of Central Americans move up through Mexico and trying to get into the United States. Some of them have been absorbed into Mexican society and the economy, but the vast majority seek to keep moving on through into the United States. This has created a very real uh, challenge for the U.S. authorities because large numbers of these people are seeking asylum status or refugee status in the United States. And it's highly debatable about whether they qualify. A lot of these people have been told, however, that if they just get to the United States border and they claim refugee status, that regardless of the validity of their claim, that they will be granted access to the country, that they will have the opportunity to stay there until there is a hearing on their refugee status, and in the interim time, though, they may be able to disappear into U.S. society. There are no doubts that there are many people who have legitimate claims to asylum in the U.S., but there are also should be no doubt there are lots of people who are there just because they believe that this is a way to get in. And so we've seen an escalation of the, um, of the situation at the southwest border where we've seen now hundreds of thousands of uh, Central Americans coming up and trying to cross into the U.S. And recently, of course, we saw the migrant caravan at the end of 2018, where somewhere between three and 7,000 people uh, were in that caravan, depending on when, when it was measured as it moved through Mexico, ending up in the city of Tijuana and being camped out there, housed in a sports stadium um, by the local authorities and the United States refusing access to these people, limiting the number of people who cross over on a daily basis to request asylum in the U.S. I think the number was about 100 a day. And we saw, of course, those highly inflammatory images of Central American migrants rushing the border crossing, um, 
border guards in the U.S. responding by firing tear gas. Um, it's difficult sometimes to maintain a, uh, a rational, analytical approach to this because you know these are, these are images which which are pretty terrible, and we know that there is desperation. Um, but we also know that the laws of the United States need to be respected and the United States needs to defend its own borders. What, we, what I think we can say here, however, is that this is a problem which is not going to go away in the short term. We're going to see more migrant caravans. There's one already starting that will come up through Mexico. And the real challenge is going to be how does the Andres Manuel Lopez Obrador administration in Mexico deal with the issue? At the end of last year, Andres Manuel was not president yet. He only took over the presidency on the 1st of December. In other words, he was able to say, this is um, President Peña Nieto, the outgoing president of Mexico. This is his problem. I don't have to worry about it. This time around, Andres Manuel López Obrador is going to own the issue. He's the president, and he will have to decide what happens at Mexico's southern border with Guatemala. He's going to have to decide how those migrants are treated as they move through Mexico. He will be responsible for abuses that take place. He'll be responsible for any Mexican government support of the migrants. And once they get to the border, he's going to have to decide how those migrants are dealt with on the Mexican side of the border. Now, he has been quite explicit saying that people have a right to migrate. He's also been explicit in saying that he wants to eliminate the causes of migration so that people don't have to migrate. He's offered work permits for Central Americans in Mexico. But most of those Central Americans, as I said earlier on, are looking to move to the United States. They don't want to stay, stay in Mexico. So at some point, he's going to come, um, he's going to have to face up to the fact that this is an issue that not only has to deal with internally, but that will be one of the most important issues he deals with on a bilateral basis with President Donald Trump. Uh, maybe we could turn now to the energy sector, uh, which is another thing that you, uh, is one of your specialties. How has Mexico's energy sector reforms affected Mexican growth? How intertwined are the Mexican and American energy sectors? And then maybe along the way you could make a comment about the recent uh, pipeline issue. Yeah. So uh, um, beginning in 2013... Uh, with a constitutional reform that took place under the Peña Nieto administration, Mexico opened up its oil and gas and electricity sectors entirely to um, foreign and private uh, direct investment. This has resulted in the um, in the signing of hundreds of billions of dollars um, in contracts, or rather contracts that imply around $220 billion in future investment in the oil and gas sector and electricity sectors in Mexico. This is a radical departure from 75 years where the oil and gas sectors were entirely closed and where the electricity sector was partially closed to foreign and private investment. The new president, Andres Manuel López Obrador, believes that those uh, uh, contracts are not doing uh, their best for Mexico, that they are not um, moving Mexico's uh, oil and gas production forward. And in fact, it would be preferable if we could return to a more statist approach to energy policy in the country. So whilst he has promised that he will not reverse the 2013 reform, he is going to present secondary legislation that will make it more difficult for foreign and private companies 
to invest in the country. Anders Manuel is very dubious of the energy reform. And what he has said to the oil and gas companies that have invested is he said, I want to see more production and I want to see higher and faster levels of investment. If not, then you're not going to convince me that this has been a positive thing for the country. So in the meantime, he has suspended all bidding rounds, so there will be no more contracts awarded in the short term. And he said that uh, after 2021, the midpoint of his presidency, he will revisit the, the, uh, the issue. In the meantime, he's also promised that he will invest more money in the national oil company Pemex, and he wants to see Pemex ramp up its production. The problem that we have here is that if he increases investment in the national oil company and Pemex begins to go out and explore for oil, any oil that it discovers, let's say it discovers a new resource tomorrow, it's going to take between five and ten years to develop that uh, resource before the first oil begins to flow from it. In other words, he's going to face a problem that between now and the end of his administration, he's not going to be able to produce that much more oil from the national oil company. He can use tried and tested methods such as nitrogen injection into existing wells to try to increase the flow, but it's not going to have a dramatic impact. So ultimately, he may see his own energy policy as failing to produce more um, wealth for the nation simply because of the time that it takes to get these resources flowing. The other thing that has really changed um, in, in the energy sector in Mexico over the past few years is that Mexico has become much more interdependent on energy with the United States. We've seen this in, in particular in the flow of two products from the U.S. to Mexico. It used to be that Mexico was a major crude oil exporter to the U.S. Mexico continues to export crude to the United States, but not in the same quantities as it did before, simply because oil production has dropped off in Mexico and because the United States is producing so much more crude oil itself. However, the United States is exporting dramatically higher levels of two products. Natural gas, which has become a major export to Mexico, as Mexico has converted its electricity generation plants from fuel oil over to natural gas. And Mexico really doesn't have um, reliable sources of natural gas in its own territory. It's not that the resources aren't there, it's just they haven't been developed up to this point. Secondly, refined products. Mexico is importing huge amounts of gasoline and other refined products from the United States. This is because of rising demand in Mexico, um, because you have a middle class which is growing year on year. And second of all, because Mexico's own refineries are outdated um, and were actually built to refine a type of crude which is no longer being produced in Mexico. So they were built in an era when Mexico was producing light crude. Mexico now produces heavy crude. So Mexico exports its heavy crude to the United States, has it refined there, and it imports the refined product. What oil it does process in, in Mexico needs to be combined with light crude that they import from the United States in order to make the, uh, the particular mix um, the right kind for Mexico's refineries. Andres Manuel has promised two things on this front. One, he has promised to develop Mexico's own natural gas resources because Mexico has huge amounts of natural gas in shale reserves and under the, uh, the Gulf of Mexico. But he has promised that he will not use hydraulic frac uh, fracturing or fracking to get that uh, gas out of the ground, which means that it's going to take a very, very long time to do it. 
on refined products. He has promised to build new refineries in Mexico. He wants Mexico to refine its own crude oil, and he wants that to happen as soon as possible. Unfortunately for Andres Manuel, just as with crude oil production, building a refinery takes time. So it's very unlikely that he's going to have a new refinery completed before the end of his administration. What does this mean? This means that becoming independent in natural gas and refined products is actually going to be an elusive dream for his administration. What does that mean for the U.S.? At least for the next five to six years, the U.S. is going to find a very uh, important market in Mexico. Well, we're coming close to the uh, to the end of the program here, but I did wanted to ask you if people wanted to learn more or stay abreast of develops developments in Mexico and about the U.S.-Mexican relationship. Uh, where are a couple places they could look? We're very lucky in uh, in Washington to have a vibrant think tank community, and if you look around um, the area, you see that there are centers such as CSIS, which has an America's program. There is the Council of the Americas, which has a lot of really interesting programming on Mexico. You have the Inter-American Dialogue, which does some excellent work on certain issues there. Um, the Atlantic Council, of course, which has done a lot of work. What I have to say, though, is that there is only one program in Washington that is dedicated to Mexico and U.S.-Mexico relations, and that is the Mexico Institute, which I'm fortunate enough to, uh, to direct. So we're very fortunate. I, I would recommend any of our listeners to actually visit our website, um, which is, you know, you can find just on wilsoncenter.org and then look up Mexico on there. Um, we try to keep that content as up-to-date and as relevant as possible. We have the, uh, the video uh, recordings of all of our major events. We put up a lot of infographics as well as shorter pieces there. We're just publishing, actually over the next uh, couple of weeks, two papers on the impact of fentanyl on, uh, on Mexico, and then secondly, the impact of, of fentanyl on the uh, heroin trade. Um, these, are, these are two very important papers in explaining how fentanyl is, uh, is transforming the drug business in North America. Now, <clears throat> away from the Mexico Institute, I would say there are two other uh, organizations uh, out there in the United States that do really, really good work on Mexico. One of them is the, uh, the Mexico program at, uh, at Rice University's Baker Institute. And secondly, the U.S.-Mexico Study Center out at the University of California, San Diego. Um, and, of course, its sister institution, they're actually housed in the same building, the Institute of the Americas, which is on the University of California, San Diego's campus. Now, U.S.-Mexico Study Center does some terrific academic work on Mexican politics. And the Institute of the Americas is really the premier uh, institution that does work on energy policy throughout the Americas, but in particular on Mexico. So I would recommend visiting all of those, um, those websites and institutions if you can. From Mexico itself, um, and depending on whether or not you, uh, you read Spanish, I would say that the, uh, uh, there are a number of think tanks which do excellent work. One of them is called Mexico Evalua, Mexico Evaluates, which has recently combined a joint forces with CDAC, a well-established think tank in Mexico. They do some terrific work uh, analyzing, critiquing Mexican government policy, in particular on questions of security and organized crime. And the second one would be IMCO. IMCO is the Mexico uh, Competitiveness Institute. Um, that does terrific work on the Mexican economy and uh, has been a very important voice over the past few years on questions of anti-corruption as well. Lastly, I would point uh, to 
COMEXI. COMEXI is the Mexican Council on Foreign Affairs, um, and they do wonderful programming on Mexican foreign policy and to a certain degree also on Mexico's internal policy. Um, they don't uh, broadcast their events live, but they do have a number of documents on their website which are worth reading. Thank you. One last question before we let you go. What are you reading right now about Mexico or anything else that you think would be interesting for our listeners and students to know about? So right now, what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to read uh, a couple of things. One, I'm focusing very heavily on understanding or rereading Mexican history, in particular, the history of the revolution and the post-revolutionary um, period. Those are um, of particular importance today just simply because of Andres Manuel López Obrador's obsession with Mexican history and his claim to, um, uh, or his desire to enact what he calls a fourth transformation of the country, coming after, one, the Mexican, uh, Mexican independence, two, the reform period of the late 19th century, and three, the Mexican Revolution. So I'm trying to understand the political dynamics of that. And the second thing that I'm looking at right now is um, I'm reading political um, biographies of Mexicans and the work in particular of Rod Camp. Rod Camp, who is an academic out at um, Claremont McKenna College, um, he's also a member of my board at the Mexico Institute, but he has just done some extraordinary work um, looking at uh, uh, historical and contemporary figures in Mexico. And when you begin to get into the, the depth of detail that he, uh, he analyzes, you know, where these people went to school, who were their thesis advisors in college, and you begin to put together a really interesting tapestry of modern political life in the country. Oh, that's very interesting. And interesting, you said Rod, Rod Kemp, was it? Kemp, C-A-M-P. C-A-M-P at Claremont McKenna College. I, many years ago, I taught there. A mm. uh, very nice little school. And Dr. Duncan Wood of the Director of the Mexico Institute at the Woodrow Wilson Center. Thanks so much for coming on to the show today. To keep up with the good work of the Marine Corps War College, follow us on Instagram, Twitter, or Facebook at, at McWar College. And special thanks to our intrepid producer, Lieutenant Colonel Jason Palma. I'm your guest host today, Bill Morgan. Thank you for listening to Eagles, Globes, and Anchors, the strategically-minded podcast of the Marine Corps War College. This concludes the EGA podcast. Thank you for joining us. The views expressed in this podcast reflect those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the views, policies, or positions of the United States Marine Corps or the Department of Defense. You can follow the Marine Corps War College on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at at College. And as always, our podcast music is Stuck in Traffic by Romero. Have a great day.